Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixer Nacho Molino. First of all, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, that music's shelf life is getting shorter and shorter. It used to be if there was a hit, it would stay with us six months to a year. We'd play it all over. You'd hear it everywhere. You'd go to a party, you'd be playing. But now, that's not the case. A current hit might last, oh, an extended news cycle. Maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not far from it. There's a lot of reasons for this. First of all, the barrier to entry is very, very low for any artist today. So we're flooded with all sorts of music that we never had before. That gives us a lot of different variables and a lot of different things to choose from. We're also distracted by multiple choices in things to do. And as a result, it's harder for artists to get any real traction. Even if you have a hit, you might only last about three years in terms of the length of your career. It turns out that when we used to purchase music, we listened to it more. We had a financial and a personal investment in it that we just don't have today in streaming. So maybe that's the biggest reason of all why music has such a short lifespan these days. But then again, the attention spans are shorter because there's a lot more choices and we're all multitasking. And music sometimes is just used as content marketing. Yes, it's true that by the time you hit 30, the fan base drifts away naturally because there's a focus on career and family and the young kids coming in just can't relate to that music even though it's only a generation old. So we're finding that this is happening sooner and sooner. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but it's just another evolution in music that we have to deal with. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, if you ever tried to mix on headphones, you know it can be difficult. The mixes always come out different. And among the reasons why is that everything sounds overly wide in phones. Sometimes it seems like the center is missing. And mono sounds seem like they're coming from inside your head rather than in the center. There's also an unnatural frequency response that many headphones infer. So why is this? Well, it turns out when we're listening to a set of stereo speakers, there's a natural crosstalk between the speakers. There's also a spectral difference of our head, and that means our head is actually changing the frequency response depending on how we aim it. So none of this happens when we're using headphones. As a result, it really changes our mix. Now, there are new ways to actually get around this. Waves has Abbey Road Studio 3 and Oceanway plugins, which I think are really good. I especially like Abbey Road Studio 3. Of course, there's sonar works, and there's plenty of other ones that are out there. But these also cost a fair amount to implement. There's also something that you can try that's a whole lot cheaper. It's called Can Opener from a company called Goodhertz. 
And what this does is actually create the crossfeed between speakers in your headphones, and you can control that amount. You can also control the angle of it, as well as many other parameters, in order to get a more realistic playback setting within your headphones. Now, between all of these, because you can, in fact, use Abbey Road Studio 3 or Sonarworks with can opener, you find that you put them all together and suddenly, yes, it is possible to mix in headphones. And not only that, it's possible to get a really good mix as well. So we're seeing a lot of advancements that are happening, especially in the last few years, on finally getting to the point where we can feel comfortable mixing on headphones. That was never the case before. My guest is five-time Grammy-winning mixer Nacho Molino, whose work with Ruben Blades, Carlos Vives, CJ Ramon, Jean-Manuel Serrat, and many, many more. Even though he comes from a rock background, Nacho has been awarded Latin Grammys for Best Salsa Album and Album of the Year, as well as Recording of the Year and Best Tropical Latin Album. During the interview, we spoke about bringing a rock sensibility to mixing salsa, the strict rhythms of salsa, using audiophile speakers for mixing, common mixing problems that he runs into, and much more. I spoke with Nacho via Zoom from his home in upstate New York. Let's go back to the beginning. Tell me how you get into the business. You started in live sound first, right? Yeah. Um, I um, I came out of high school. I was already, you know, playing in bands, especially punk bands. Um I was doing some home recording because I had a I had a four track, but I really wanted to learn. So I uh, started calling all the live sound companies that I could find, and uh, one of them gave me the gave me a, a job. So I started, you know, um, the same as everyone, carrying speakers all over the place, and then worked myself up into actually getting to you know use the the mixer well how did you make the jump then to the studio well um that was what i always wanted to do actually being in the studio uh instead of uh doing live sound although i still do live sound then uh after a while of working in the live sound company when i kind of felt myself a little more comfortable with all the knobs and talking to musicians and monitoring and all those. Then I started looking for, for a job in the studio. And uh, I found a studio at the time it was called pork shop studios. And uh, yeah, I, I, I got to work in that one. I, I didn't stop working on the live sound side of things. But then, you know, in the studio, everything is so um, more refined in mm. terms of audio when it comes to it. So I, I started taking, actually noticing so much stuff with like, you know, miking techniques and mixing. And then I would take all of that back to the live situation and I would be improving, you know, both things at the same time. Where was this at? Panama. You know, that's a place I want to go to. Really? I've been wanting to go there for a long time because I hear it's, a lot of people really love it. Yeah, you. the thing with Panama is that you have basically everything uh, except for snow. 
um, you have everything. You have mountains, you have jungle, you have beaches, like anything you can imagine. And you can go from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean in like less than an hour. Oh, uh, you know? I love it. Yeah. It's very nice. You were in Panama, you were doing all of this, and you're in, the studio was in Panama too? Yes, in, in Panama City, yes. Okay. And you got a break then working on on a record, kind of promoted your career, right? Yeah, I um, I worked really, 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 really hard, actually, until uh, I was able, finally able to open my own place. I had a partner at the beginning, um, and we opened a studio that was called PTY Studios. And uh, PTY is the... Um, the code for the airport. When you see PTY on a on a briefcase, it's Panama City. Uh, so um, actually, my my ex business partner came came up with that one, and we opened that one in two thousand five, and we started, you know, I, I started getting really really getting my own clients at that time, and uh, it the studio started in an apartment of a building. So I would drive everybody nuts during the day while we we're recording drums. Mm, I bet. Because it wasn't, wasn't isolated at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, drums or electric guitars, because you know, they have, they have to be quite loud. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, uh, I think after a year being, of being there, we moved into, uh, moved the studio into, a, into a house and we, we did a, you know, properly isolation, proper isolation and, and acoustics and everything. And then that's kind of where everything started actually, you know, getting the ball rolling with uh, working with um, more important artists. Were they coming because of you or your studio? Well, I think it was a combination of things because uh, at the time when we moved to the, um, to the house, there was another engineer friend of mine who we've still worked together sometimes he was working with us in the, at the studio and he had his clients and I had my clients, but we, we both were just, you know, working very hard to have everything sounding the best as possible. So people would, yes, they would come, they would come to the studio for the name of the studio, but then they, you know, depending on, on what they heard on the, on the like outside, like they would decide who to work with. So you could say it was, because of the studio's name at that time. What kind of music were you doing, mostly? Well, it, this is a very interesting answer, because uh, Panama's music scene is very small, so you cannot uh, niche down in one or two genres. So you basically have to be good at whatever is thrown to you in order to make a living. You know, actually, it's, it's funny because when you think about Latin America, you would think, you know, Latin music, like salsa and stuff like that. I didn't actually start working in salsa until probably 2007 or 2008. So I already had like 10 years of doing live sound and, and recording to before I, I got into the first salsa recording that I had in my life. But mostly it was either uh, rock, rock pop metal yeah then salsa came in and then there was a there was kind of like a huge wave of um uh, 
salsa orchestras coming to the studio to record. You know, it's very similar to my friend Benny Facconi. Okay. You know Benny, right? Yes. Yeah. And he's one of my oldest friends. Benny had his first hit, big hits with Mana. And of course, that's as rock as you can get. And then it wasn't until later where he was exposed to all sorts of other Latin music, which, you know, now he records all of that all the time. But uh, it wasn't the case for a long time. So it was very similar to what you went through. Yeah. And uh, also, I, I am actually like my favorite kind of music is metal like my favorite band is pantera mm. but um my let's put it this way like my biggest achievements have all been with latin music meaning mostly salsa now do you think that's because you brought a different sensibility to recording or mixing it yeah i mean um the thing with salsa is that i i, I find it very much like metal or rock because uh like when you hear the trumpets or the trombones or the whole brass section it's like having very distorted guitars just you know pushing a huge chord you know mm -hmm. and uh there and then in salsa you also have the um well the cowbell actually which is the handbell which is marking the um the downbeat when it's the when it's the second part of the song and that kind of makes me always makes me kind of like headbang a little bit you know so <laughs> and and you have so much percussion and basically it's like it's like mixing a whole bunch of toms because all of them are drums that you need the attack for the intelligibility and then you need the note for the actual timbre of the of the of the drum right mm -hmm. and uh basically congas are like like the the main the main element of the percussion it would be the the um it would be like it would be like drums mm -hmm. if it was rock or um or metal and then the bass has to be tight with the congas which would be you know kind of like the bass usually goes tight with the kick drum yeah only that congas don't go that low, but it has to kind of be like that for in order for a mix to work. Hmm. Okay. Do you approach the bass differently? I wouldn't know because honestly, I've never seen, I mean, I, I never got to assist anybody in a studio and I never got to be at like, a, I don't know, um, another salsa album recording or mixing session being worked by anybody else so i just kind of try to figure it out by my own also i mean i i of course i had help from uh the, the album producers that i was working with and then I've, I've um learned how to understand salsa because of everything they 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 have told me and taught me but i would i wouldn't really know if i treat the bass differently from other people because I just, I've never seen anybody else do it. How long did it take you to kind of learn, you know, the basics of salsa? Well, it, it took me a while because it's a, it's a very strict formula, actually. Because salsa is based off the clave. Yeah. And the, the clave in the, in the simplest 
uh, in its simplest form, it can only be two ways. It can be 3-2 or it can be 2-3, which is actually two measures. Just uh, You just invert them, mm-hmm. right? So even though the clave has a tempo, meaning that it can follow a metronome, its accents are not linear like a metronome. Uh, They're nonlinear. Yeah. So all the patterns for the percussion are, are already kind of like premeditated. So you just follow that and whatever um, whatever you do extra on top of that are usually the fills. But also all the um, the brass arrangement is based on the clave with the accents of the clave, right? Yeah. And the clave of the song actually gets, uh, it, like the arrangers, arrangers uh, figure out the clave because of the, mel- the rhythmic of the melody of the song. Then they decide if it's 3-2 or 2-3. There are some songs that can fit any of the two, and then they decide which one feels better with the song. And then, then they write the whole arrangement. Interesting. Yeah, that was very different for me because in, in, in rock and metal, you have one, two, three, four. Yeah, you know, yeah. over and over. In salsa, you have pa, 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 pa. So it's, it's not linear. Yeah. And everything is based off those accents. And then that's how you, you kind of like start um, understanding how the rhythm patterns of each instrument actually plays with each other. It's, interesting. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, it is. So when you're putting everything together, then when you're layering it, how do you approach like effects? I'm thinking more like reverbs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, that usually depends on the producer of the album because some of them like a lot of reverb. Like in the like in in the nineties, you you would hear you would li- you would hear lots of reverb on salsa, and uh, lately not so much. So that basically depends on the on the arranger. Usually, for the what I would call the older style of reverb, I usually have to get my lexicon out because the plugins uh, they still can't reproduce that kind of like feeling of depth in the music, in my opinion. Interesting. So, like a four eighty or, or two twenty four. You- using no i'm using i'm using a pcm 91 right now okay well i i had a good. i had a pcm 70 which i sold uh before coming to the states and i profoundly regret it yeah so i might get one again yeah <laughs> but i'm just relying on my pcm 91 right now no that's a good good unit and pcm 70 had a sound though yeah distinctly different it was noisy in in the sense that it made a lot of hiss but if you kind of like gain structured it a certain way you could have the noise floor very low yeah yeah but i always remember having like uh one of the mastering mastering engineers i usually use back then when when um spotify only accepted 16-bit files he he would tell me uh he wouldn't even dither dither the signal because of all the noise that the lexicon had on the on the noise floor you know wouldn't have to yeah right it was there already that's right Let's just talk about mixing. Uh, is that what you're doing mostly these days, just mixing? Yeah. I've been mixing and only mixing since I moved to the States. Uh, I moved to the States about two years ago, two years and a couple months. 
And um, yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I, I love mixing, actually. I've always wanted to just mix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I finally got to do it. Are you totally in the box or is it, do you have a hybrid setup? It's a hybrid setup, but it's more in the box than, than hybrid actually, because the only thing that I'm doing outside of the box is the summing. And, uh, I have, a an SSO compressor for the, for bus compression and that's it. I just go back into the computer. If I need anything extra on the master fader, it'll be in pro tools. It won't be analog. Yeah. Yeah. And everything I use is plugins. So everything's processed before coming out to the summing, unless I'm dealing with the, with the salsa that needs the, the hardware reverb, then I'll just insert that one yeah. somewhere. What kind of monitors are you using? I'm using, uh, actually what would be mastering speakers or hi-fi speakers, better set. Uh, I'm using Egglestone works. Oh boy. High end. Yeah, but I love these. I, I got these from from a, um, a mastering engineer, also a friend of mine. Uh, he was getting obviously bigger ones than these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I bought them from him because uh, he gave me a good price, and I could you know pay little by little. So I I um, I bought them, and um, I love them. What I always liked about those types of speakers, uh, audiophile style speakers, was that they just sounded big. It never sounded loud. It just got big and bigger. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot to do with the amplifier also, but um, the thing with these speakers is that as long as you have a good chain going into them, you can really, really pinpoint very small changes. Yeah. Um, well, like candle, like what mastering needs to, to do, you know, because mastering is very, very subtle, actually. Yeah. Um, but having this kind of um, detail with with the mixing lets me work a lot faster, because um, I don't have to second guess too much. I would say. Yeah. Since it's a full range system, then I'm not, I'm not, you know. I don't have any doubts with the low end or how big or how small is it going to sound or how open or whatever. It's just there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And ever since I got these, I feel like my, when, when I, when I, uh, um, print the mixes, most of the mixes are basically at the same level without me doing anything. Mm. I will have a lot of variation before these speakers um, and, not, and it's not because of gain staging i don't i don't know what it is because i always keep my my mixing volume for the monitor controller i always keep it the same but with these ones it's like it's like it's always the same kind of like the same volume same uh kind of like you would say the same color because it's the same mixer using yeah. the same chains right yeah, yeah yeah but it's like if i if i mixed an album with five different artists the mastering engineer would have a lot of fun because he wouldn't have to actually match each song to each other yeah because it, it would be matched from from the mixing wow yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy how how they make me work actually what amplifier are you using well i'm using a mytech amplifier okay 
MyTech has the, um, an amplifier called uh, Brooklyn Amplifier. Um, it's a Class D amp. And I know for some people in the hi-fi or audiophile community, some of them would say Class D is like a capital sin or something. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, this one works the way it should. Um, I tried other brands of amplifiers, meaning Class A or Class AB, and this one just, you know, <laughs> this one was just way best, way better. It's funny when you get that combination right, you know right away. Yeah, because it just, you know, with like with the other amplifiers, it would be everything would be very pristine and clear, but it would be too pretty. Yeah, yeah. like you know, because the other amplifiers have so much. Um, you know, they either have huge transformers and all these things that actually round off the sound, and this one doesn't. Yeah, this one just you know puts it out the way it goes in basically so i with this amplifier i can actually feel the music more than with the other ones of course class a or class ab amplifiers will give you more depth than a class d amplifier but this one has enough depth like mm -hmm. way a lot of way more depth that other class d amplifiers have heard in fact, like if you watch a movie here in my system, let's say one of those Netflix series that have they have like a lot of like ambience uh, effects and you know, like huge depth into the stereo image, like you can actually hear it like very deep, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's very good. I bet. Wow. Uh, do you have favorite plugins that you tend to use in every mix? Yes, I have a lot of let's say associations with some companies like um, i'm a waves artist i use also um Sonimus plugins which are i don't know if you know them yes i do yeah. yeah ik multimedia and isotope mm -hmm. right but like all my go-to's are for example uh on the channels th themselves i will i will either have the ssl e channel the old one or the the mix hub the one from uh chris chris oh. lord algae yeah okay um because i i i love ssl mixers so i f i feel kind of like at home with those uh, although they don't sound exactly the same as an ssl because actually no plugin actually sounds exactly like the real thing but i feel very comfortable with with those two so depending on what i want to do i'll just change for either one and uh, from Sonimus, I like using the um, the latest EQ they put out, which is uh, a Poltec-based EQ called Sun EQ2. I use that on my master bus all the time. Sometimes I'll use the um, the Sat Sun for some console saturation, depending on the on the depending on what was how how it was reported or what it needs. Mm -hmm. From IK Multimedia and usually using the um sso bus compressor when i cannot get the the real one to do what i want mm -hmm. and from isotope obviously i'm using ozone mm, yeah. all of them. that's under my master fader and obviously rx too because you know sometimes you get like noises and stuff like that but, and everything rx just works yeah yeah 
Well, let's talk about that for a second. Are the tracks that you get in, do you see a problem that keeps on coming up over and over that you get with, with the sessions that you get to mix? Yeah. There are various common things that are happening. I, um, most people um, think if they buy a very affordable um, interface and if they send that recording to a, a pro mixing engineer, then they will have a very, very, very good sound, good sounding album. But people are always forgetting that the sound of it always starts at the source. Mm. And that's the, that's the common issue that I'm finding. Meaning good musicians, good instruments, and very well played. Microphones, microphones are different colors. So you, you pick and choose whatever you want, but you need that musician and that instrument yeah. in a fairly decent room. It doesn't have to be a $2 million studio in order to get something good. You just have to move things around until you figure it out and it sounds good, right? But also, the thing is, very affordable um, interfaces, uh, they sound like very affordable interfaces, right? Yeah. So you, if, if you record something at home with very affordable gear, right, you cannot expect it to sound like it was recorded in a $2 million studio with very expensive gear, right? If you have the right groove, right, yeah. then it, it, will, it will always feel great. But the sound is not going to be the same. I, that's something that people are not used to separate from each other. Yeah, yeah, right. You know? And then that's, that's what I'm actually finding the most. And obviously, arrangement is oh. a huge part of it. Yeah. Because some people, like... I, I find sometimes that they, uh, they record, for example, electric guitars, and then they layer acoustic guitars on top of it, and then an organ, and then a pad, and they're all playing in the same octave. Yeah, same register. Yeah, right. No, that's a problem. Yeah, and then they, I mean, they obviously want everything to be heard, but the thing is, like, we're we're occupying the same space with everything. So you can, you're only going to be able to hear a couple of those things, but not all of them. So those are the things that I'm finding the most, which is people are not paying enough attention to the recording stage and the arrangement. Yeah. I've always found that myself where the arrangement is, and especially now when you can, you have, as many tracks as you want at your disposal and there's always a lot of ideas well let's try this well let me try this one okay let's try this and next thing you know you have all of these tracks that are basically playing in the same range as you say in the same in the same register and it's like well and, and then they'll send them all to you and say well yeah you figure it out and it's like no no wait no that's your job it's your job you figure that out and send me one yeah and the, the thing is I mean, I understand why they would think like that because I used to think like that uh, a long time ago. And that's something I think people with time, they, they learn that it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But yeah, the, the thing is they, they will send you, you know, a kick, a voice, guitar, keyboard, 
shakers, tambourine, you know, everything in the in the intro of the song when you only need the kick drum, one guitar, and the lead vocal in the intro. And the song is the intro is amazing with those only those three things. Yeah. You know? Yeah, right. Right. And they they're you know, it's it's um you know what it could be? Like people are not uh people are just trying stuff out and they probably do not have the song in their head, the arrangement in their head. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with experience and so much more. Well, like when I was starting, everybody played in bands and you played in clubs before you moved anywhere else and you got a lot of experience working on cover songs, but that would teach you how songs are put together. So yep. then when you started to work on your own, you had an idea of how it all worked and it just came became second nature. And now when you don't have that, then people are experimenting and they're, they're reinventing the wheel a lot on that. Yeah. Plus there's so many, um, people making music and they're, they're not really musicians. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, that has nothing bad. It's, it, there's nothing wrong with that. Anybody could be, should be able to make music, but, but like, if you're a doctor, you, you study. You know, mm, yeah. If you're if you're gonna be a lawyer, you study to be a lawyer. If you're gonna be an architect, architect, you study to be an architect. So if you want to be a producer or a musician, you have to study music. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you go to college or if you do it by yourself or if you watch uh, YouTube or whatever from you know reasonable sources, right? Yeah. But people just grab a, a computer and whatever. Um, software i don't want to name names and they just start doing stuff you know yeah and it, it that's fine but you you have to get to a place where you actually you know you, if you want to get really serious into it you should study how to put music together yeah right right you know it's like it's like okay if you, if i always say the problem with music is that if there's a bad song nobody dies <laughs> you're right <laughs> if you if you if you wrongly operate a patient in the hospital the patient will mostly die yeah yeah right you know so those are things like me of course it is not as um dramatic as it is you know yeah yeah as, as operating someone and, uh, or making doing surgery on someone do you have a favorite mixing technique um, what do you refer with mixing techniques? Like parallel processing or, you know, you always use certain plugins on the mix bus and, or compress things or a certain way, or is there a certain trick that you use all the time? Well, parallel compression has been something that I've never been able to get it right. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm still trying because I find that like mixes that have parallel compression, I like them. I just haven't been able to <laughs> get it right by myself. Yeah. But one thing that I, that I do is I EQ into compression all the time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I do not like EQing after compression. I will usually compress something before EQing it, but the EQ will be before the compressor and chain. So I'll come, I mean, Let's say we have a, a voice, right? I'll tr I'll get the compressor going, 
and then I'll EQ into the compression. That's something that I that I always do. Um, I usually never EQ and then compress. I always compress and then EQ, but the EQ is before. Most people do it the other way around, but you know whatever works. I think it's it's a thing of like I learned on analog, and you know e- analog EQs they're flexible. If you if you crank them, they won't. You know they they will have like a limit to itself. So when you keep cranking whatever you're cranking, it kind of compresses itself a little bit or saturates a little bit. Yeah, yeah, right. I I think it. I think that's where that comes from because if you grab a digital EQ and then you just crank it, it'll crank all the way up. Yeah, you know. So that's probably why why I do it that way mostly. Last question, Nacho. What's the best piece of business advice? that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Ooh, okay. I, I actually have a couple. Okay. Yeah, one is get good, get a good night's sleep because with a good night's sleep, you will be patient and you will resist all of the crazy stuff that this business will throw at you. <laughs> and the other one is this is a business, right? Yeah. For example, me, I'm here to make a living. I love music and I feel music, but this is a business. And yes, it is a business that involves art and that it has its own magic, but it is a business. So people have to think about it as a business. And I'm talking mostly about artists. Artists um, get involved into the feeling part of it and to the magic and everything but when it comes to the business side of things, they they don't draw the line where you have to start thinking business-wise. Mm. I'm, and I'm talking about when you have to actually get your music out there. I'm not talking about doing music to sell out. Yeah, yeah I'm talking right. about you made what, you, what you've done, it's ready to release. Then start thinking business. Because that that's actually when you could say, I mean, somebody somebody will think another way, but that's when business actually starts. Yeah, right. After you have a product. Yeah. And it's the same thing as selling, I don't know, soap bar. Hmm. You need to distribute it. You need to put it in the stores. You need to market it so people know that the, that the soap that you made actually exists. Yeah. And then people have to like it for in order to other people in order for other people to buy it. It is a, it is the same thing. People have to start thinking business wise at some point. That's the only two real pieces of advice here. You can find out more about Nacho at nachomolino.com. That's N A C H O M O L I N O, all one word, nachomolino.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.